0: they were trying to push not just one child but, and not just two but potentially three two in a bunk bedroom down the corridor from my room <laughs> then a crib in mine I'm like, have you seen the size of my my rooms? They're literally about 8 by 11 I can barely fit a bed in there for myself never mind a crib and she said, well you know you, you're allowed to have a baby in your own room until the age of 6 months I'm like, oh, we'll just stack them up in the closet shall we? I mean, I don't <laughs> And stay a while amid the British charm that is called my brain. I'm a journalist and pastor in California, but don't hold that against me. I wasn't brainwashed. I chose to leave my atheism on my own accord, consequently after two sips of Kool-Aid. But that's for another time. These opinions are my own most of the time. The humour was learned of a book I found in a hedge, and the dreamer in me, well, she's here to stay. So, you're very welcome. Hello friends Romans Countrymen It's been a while (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) apologise anymore My life is being quite a wild one and I've been in two different countries probably since I've um, actually no three different countries since I've last uh, recorded a podcast so we're going to get straight into it so I don't waste your time there's nothing worse than a thousand adverts and someone rumbling on about their weekend when you're like I don't care I came for the subject so I have decided to uh, do a podcast on fostering me personally doing fostering and why on earth I'm doing it um Some people have asked why I'm fostering. Other people are like, that's awesome, that's great. No one's really asking the why behind it, which I totally understand because they're like, oh, well, clearly she's 41 and obviously wants children. Um, If I can fully confess right now, I'm not sure if I even like children. I'm just doing this for a few reasons that might be surprising to you. Number one, I fully believe... That if we actually made more of an active, intentional uh, journey to take care of kids in the foster care system, we would catch upstream some of the dilemmas that we face within homelessness, incarceration, and trafficking. And of course, as you know, eight, nine years ago, I started my journeying to being fascinated with anti-sex trafficking and uh, doing as many missions as I could over the time that I was over in America and learn a huge amount of information of stats and statistics, uh, the retention rate of those traffickers, why they got that to that place in the first place and uh, just the high amount of numbers um, that are victims of trafficking had actually come from orphanages or they had been involved in the foster care system at some point. Um, So, And that's down to the fact that we have an overburdened foster care system and we don't have enough people taking care of the children that need to be taken care of, taking care of children that never chose to be in this position in the first place. So that's the justice side of it. And I can go more into details as to how I got to this place. On top of it, before I was even in my 30s, just a sort of target one of the assumptions that's been made of like, oh, she's getting to that point, she obviously can't have children of her own because she's not married, so therefore she must be just going to the social services now to try and find a child. But the reality is is that I actually always wanted to foster and adopt um when I was much, much younger. So we're talking when I was twenty-one, twenty-two, I really wanted to foster and adopt, but I wanted to do it with a husband and I wanted to do it uh when I felt like my career was a bit more sorted and when I was a bit more sorted. Um my father died at the age of twenty three. That threw me off for a, a curveball for quite some years. And I didn't really want to uh, take on something when I knew I needed a huge amount of healing from the trauma of losing my dad. On top of that, I also thought I'd be married. So I had delayed that journey. And quite honestly, I didn't want to do fostering. And this might be an encouragement to some of you who are like, don't know if I could do fostering because I have to give them back. (laughs) Um, So I... My original stance was that I actually wanted to adopt and I wanted to adopt under the age of nine months um, because that meant they had less abandonment issues and less trauma issues and would be less difficult as children. I'm not joking. These are the words that came out of my mouth. And I remember... um, even in conversations with people I was having serious relationships with and saw a future with, I would have this conversation about are you up for adoption because that's pretty big for me. I also wondered whether I had a heart for adoption because perhaps I'd be ma- marrying later in life and therefore I'd be marrying someone with children already. Um, but I think the tail end of all of the surmises of why I wanted to adopt was because I'm an only child. My parents tried to adopt when, when we're talking britain and 70s when um they didn't allow my father i'm not joking to adopt because they didn't they uh, had carried out a medical test on him as they do with a, a lot of um well everyone that's looking to adopt or foster you have to go through a medical exam and uh, my father had done his medical test and they sort of came back to him and said we realized you got very heavy asthma so your life expectancy probably isn't that long and that means that we won't be able to allow you to adopt. At that time, what was a two-year-old black boy? To this day, I don't know who it, who that guy is or where he is or what his name is. We, I never knew that information. But they were that close because they, they'd had their hearts set on him. So I think I always grieved a little bit when I was younger. I didn't know that story until I was much older, but I always grieved somewhere that I was supposed to have a sibling. And my parents were so great that I was so sad that it was only me that got to experience how brilliant my mother and father were. And, um, albeit I know my father had an interesting, complicated journey in life, I still believe he was an absolute treasure in so many ways. And I think the journey of having them as parents just felt sad that it was just me that was getting to uh, experience them as parents and wish that I'd shared, shared them with somebody else. On top of that, I always wanted a brother that was going to take care of me in the playground and I had to stick up for myself from a very young age. Uh, I didn't realise being an only child was a thing. I thought it was just that we'd get accused of being spoiled, which, of course, as a working-class family, that didn't happen for me. But it's interesting that when you start going into the journey of looking at fostering and adoption yourself as you become an adult and you start to recognise what, what your kind of spirit is yearning to do, um, then you start to really look back at how you were brought up. And of course, I'll go into that a little bit more later on. But one of the most important things that I think I had to recognise was why do I want to adopt? And I had to answer the question that my mother had asked me a few years ago, very solemnly and very seriously over dinner. We were out in a pub somewhere, I think we were having a Sunday roast, and she said, I'm only going to ask you this once in your life. And um, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just asking for an honest answer. And she said, are you wanting to adopt or foster because you want something or someone to unconditionally love you? To which I responded my gosh, I didn't even think about them loving me. I've been procrastinating for so long because I thought they might hate me. So the original journey was that I wanted to adopt a baby younger than nine months. Some adopted parents had sort of suggested to get as young as you could, which is why there was such a long waiting list for babies. However, again, I wasn't married and I was single, so I was sort of waiting until I had a partner to do this with. Um... But what's kind of brilliant and beautiful about the journey as a single looking into adoption and fostering is that you are very, very careful about who you choose to be your lifelong partner because you're already looking at them as whether they're a good father figure, whether they have a good archetype of fathering in them. Um, that would be a great example of integrity and strength to anyone that comes into our world because you're not just dealing with children, you're dealing with children that have been trapped in trauma and have been facing trauma from a very, very young age. I don't know if any of you have listened to the audiobook or read the book of what happened to you, but within there, there's an awful lot of stories and cases about foster children trapped in the system and the trigger responses. So you're dealing with an awful lot of trauma, which is another reason why I was procrastinating for so long. I also didn't want to go through the grief of losing children if I was going to foster. So I actually had a point blank, absolutely not, not doing fostering. I'll just cry all the time and I cry enough on a daily basis, whether it's kindness, gratitude, laughter or general trauma from something. (laughs) So therefore, I don't need anything to add on to the tears of heartbreak. Um, I'm a fairly happy person, but I also am a very emotional person. And so when I I, um, I feel stuff quite easily and I, I'm very aware I could get attached. And although I've had a great journey of navigating how to move on after relationships have finished in my life, it didn't mean that I wanted to do that with children and... So I actually poo-pooed the entire idea and decided that I would wait until I adopted. Until I was about 35. And then when I was 35 years of age, I had a dream. And at that time, I was also feeling incredibly hopeless about my life. I thought by that point I would have been married. And I, um, although I'd had some beautiful relationships, not one of them felt like they were my husband, the one that I was going to do life with. I fully believe in three very simplistic things that you need to have in order for a relationship to thrive and have longevity, to have to share the same core values, to both be able to laugh at and with each other and to have a huge amount of respect for each other. I think those are three pretty brilliant fundamental things to have in a relationship. And if you don't have them, please don't marry them. Um, and that's actually saved me from an awful lot of heartbreak in the, in the first place. On top of that, I would say that the journey that I've been on as a single has actually helped me strengthen, take care of myself, not rely on a spouse or somebody else to help me out. However, I would say the need and the necessity for a community has been incredibly important. Um, So as I was at 35, I, I hadn't built perhaps enough history with the Lord or within my life and within my faith to believe that I could do this alone. Um... But I did have a very poignant dream over the summer when I was thirty-five, and I think I just started pastoring um, that year. And I'd had a dream, and I'm sure I've shared this dream potentially in a workshop. So, for any of those that have been in the workshop, I'm sorry that I'm repeating myself. But I had a dream, and I kept this dream to myself for a year and a half until I shared it with anyone other than um, my mother and. um, um, and, uh, Bill Johnson, those are the only two, because Bill and I were having coffee the next morning. And so I told him, because it was just such a vivid dream. Um, and Bill had listed off the prophets that he wished were alive to be able to interpret the dream, but they were no longer. Um, but the dream was this, I was sitting in an airport lounge and I'm reading a newspaper, I'm, li- I'm in London Heathrow Airport, I'm reading this newspaper, everything is bright and full of colour, um, I n- only have black and white dreams, if it's in colour, um, it's normally the Lord, if it's in black and white, it's normally my fear. I'm not suggesting that's prophetic. I'm just saying that's what I've recognised over my journey in my life. So this is full of colour. It's very vivid. Um, And I could even picture the patterns in the seats of the airport lounge. I'm reading this newspaper. I believe it's the Daily Telegraph. And uh, a flight station comes over and she says, "Um, Miss Lloyd, no, Miss, Miss Lloyd, um, your baby is over there in the, in the carrier, over there, whenever you're ready to collect him. And I went, I don't have a baby. And she went, you do, remember we had an agreement. And I looked around thinking, she's absolutely bonkers. And I looked around going, does anyone else think this woman should be arrested for just pure insanity? Anyone knows right now that I'm fairly well-dressed, I have a laptop, I'm a business career woman, and I do not have a baby if I did, I'd have some amount of throw-up on me somewhere, surely. Anyone with me? No? No? None of you are listening? OK, brilliant. Looked around, no one's listening. And she uh, smiled, saying, thanks very much. I continued to read my newspaper and just pretended that that didn't just happen. Everyone boards the flight, and as I show my boarding pass and my passport, the baby carrier, lo and behold, is on a table next to the gate with a baby in it, and no parent is attached to this child. It's about three or four months old and it's a boy. I grab the baby carrier going, oh my gosh, everyone's forgotten this child. And I obviously must go and give this child to their parent. So I get on the flight and I make an announcement verbally to everyone going, it's probably slightly embarrassing, but someone has left their baby on the plane, um, off the plane, and I've got it here with me. I'm just going to leave it in the seat. So if anyone wants to come and collect it, you're welcome to come and get it and we'll all keep our eyes on our screens so it's just avoiding the embarrassment of the fact you just forgot your child in the airport lounge okay thanks so much so i go back to my seat i watch a movie for about half an hour the plane takes off and i'm looking back and no one's grabbed this child and i'm thinking dang what is going on so I walk back, I grabbed the baby, and um baby's getting a bit fussy by this point understandably and um so I put him on my lap and I'm incredibly clumsy with it and he uh, i don't know what to do with it I don't know how to hold its head or hold its neck, obviously not by its neck because that would be a bit awkward um and might put, might be the dream to put me off ever touching a um a baby or child ever again um with any form of loving kindness so i um Basically, uh, took this child, put him on my lap, and um, all of a sudden he grabbed my thumb, and I had this overwhelming sense of, oh, the kid needs me. And it was probably the closest I can imagine to being maternal. I'm not actually all that maternal, despite what some of you wonderful people have been saying. <laughs> I've uh, and have been very encouraging saying you're gonna be a fantastic foster mum. I've always been quite um, goal oriented and um, career driven and uh, I was always quite nervous about pregnancy, to be honest with you. I I'm I'm a nemetophobe, I was very terrified of being sick, and I've got plenty of those stories of my phobia flying in full colours over my lifetime. Um, I'm much better with throwing up now, but gosh, there was a time during my twenties and thirties where I just I really couldn't be anywhere near anyone throwing up or feeling sick. And if I did, I was walking the fields of nature for many hours. So um, morning sickness was a big no-no for me. And so I wasn't all that fussed about wanting or needing to be pregnant. Again, um, I'm not suggesting that the Lord gives us things like emetophobia, but perhaps that was a blessing for me. Um, and it certainly is a thing that helped me not ever take drugs or be a coke addict, which could have been an easy path for me, given the fact that I worked in advertising. So I um, take this child. I'm very useless with this child, even though I have this overwhelming sort of maternal need to take care of this child all of a sudden. Um, And then we cut to another scene where I'm I'm swimming on a rooftop pool um, in what I believe to be a Soho house type of vibe, sort of members club, um, of which I was not a member of at the time. I was before, but I'd frozen and then cancelled my membership many years ago. It's only been this last year that I became a member again. And, um, which is interesting just on the timing because, um, yeah, I woke, I was swimming and the child was sort of flopped over in the sun lounger and was kind of falling out of the lounger. So I sort of got out of the pool and propped him up again and then got back in to swim. Honestly, this dream wasn't exactly an encouragement to my mothering skills. If anything, it just said, um, you should probably keep way away from children Um, on top of that didn't know how to change a diaper still don't Um, that's not what they train human fostering training for the record in case anyone was wondering if you have like a day where they teach you how to take care of children they don't Um, so I then go um, and wake up instantly and um, I instantly say to the Lord what on earth was that dream and the Lord said one day you're going to adopt and then he said the name Malachi now that's not the name of the child I knew that, I just felt it wasn't the name of the child but it was for me to read the book of Malachi and of course it's the last book in the Old Testament and of course it's the one that talks about the father and the sons um, and the spirit of adoption is, is referenced within that book so also Malachi means messenger of God so all of these things felt quite confirming, and then within that dream and within the month of that dream, I started to make friends with countless amounts of people, not because I was looking for them, but they were literally turning up on my doorstep at times. People that had adopted, people that were fostering, people that had a heart for this were coming into my life. And when I sat down with Bill the next day and had coffee with him, he said, "It's it's time to research. It's not time to act." And I really felt on that because I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm I'm, I'm only just starting pastoring. I again, I'm still waiting for the hubs." Um, and then I remember having conversations with very well worship, very well known worship leaders who um, had adopted as single. As a single woman, um, I had met and, and I would listen to the stories about how the Lord would father these children with them. Um, So I started to recognize that the push to to research was very important. And I would ask at any given moment, any opportunity that I could have with anyone that was involved in the foster care system or adoptive journey um, to give me as much information as they possibly could. And I asked very honest, very upfront questions that probably made people feel very uncomfortable at the time. Um, But it felt like I've had... um, just an absolute determination to know as much as i possibly could i was dming people that were foster single foster people across the world and um uh and i'll reference some of those people in in a little bit so i started researching and i was still only researching about adoption Again, to be very clear, because I wanted to make sure they were as little, little traumatised as possible, as little abandonment issues as possible, as little behavioural issues as possible. And therefore, we're going to have a nice cosy little baby to take care of. And hopefully, by the time I'm ready in research, I'll have the guy and we can all be a happy family as we are a cosy little Christian number somewhere in a house in California. <laughs> oh how we laugh now because now of course um we're getting into my late 30s and by this point i'm doing enough research to uh learn how it seems that adoption especially in america was an incredibly expensive process and uh, people were getting their hearts very set on babies whether they were born or not Um, and the legal repercussions that I've seen with so many friends who've had failed adoptions and ones that fell through, uh, the, you know, stories of my friends going to the hospital to go and collect the baby and coming back to a car with an empty baby car seat because the, the, the biological mother had changed her mind, um, and i was i think i was privy to ex- being exposed to these stories recognizing even if you do sign up for the um oh yeah we've got we've we've attached you to a birth mother we've attached you to all these things uh it should be a cozy ride so many things can go wrong because obviously this is humanity and this is life and this is biological urgings and the fear of not doing a good job, but then the strength all of a sudden the courage to be able to take care of their own child comes up. And it's bittersweet because you want them to stay with their biological, um, and yet there's this yearning that can happen for you to have your own. And so I was thankful that I was being witness to this stuff, and I was very thankful that I had friends that could be that honest and that vulnerable about their process. And equally, I was seeing so many thousands, and here are some statistics, 400,000 children are currently in the foster care system in America. Out of those 400,000, there are 130,000 that cannot be reunited with their legal biological parents, so therefore they are legally waiting for a forever family. Out of those 130,000, only 1% will take anyone over the age of eight. Just to give you a contrast of the church and the contribution of the church, there are 400,000 churches in America. That means that one family in every three congregations only needs to adopt one child from one family in every three congregations to wipe out that number that are legally waiting for a forever home that are stuck in the foster care system and are likely to transition out if people don't take them in. Now, if those people are transitioning out, you can bet your bottom dollar that the statistics of the crime and the homelessness and the mental health issues and the trafficking issues all go skyrocketing because they never got to experience the understanding of a solid and steadfast family. Now, I'm very aware that as I was going through this journey of even just being a single mother and adopting, let's say I wasn't getting any closer to finding someone that I really wanted to settle down with and enjoy the brilliance of. Well, I was now faced with a question of like, what if I adopt as a single mother? And of course, what I was finding is the church were often trying to dissuade me from doing that because they didn't believe that it was good for the child and they didn't want to promote single parent families they wanted to promote the traditional family which was a mother and a father taking care of a child Now, the problem that we have with that is statistically, um, we are getting into a situation now where by the year 2030, 45% of prime working age women between 25 and 44 in the US will be single. That's the largest share in history, up to 41% in uh, uh, 2018. And so according to a 35-page study titled The Rise of the She Economy by investment bank Morgan Stanley, In total, the single women population will grow by an average annual rate of 1.2% through to 2030 to 77.5 million compared with a 0.8% growth rate for the overall US population what I'm trying to tell you and obviously with the the rise and the liberal journey of the LBGTQ plus movement we are now in a situation where women will be more single than ever before I'm not declaring that over the world things can change rapidly and for all sorts of weird and wonderful reasons but unless we start to get actually a better um, narrative around marriage unless we get a better narrative around actually healthy relationships and unless we can change somewhere the dynamic of her capacity and everyone getting their emotional and physical needs met without any kind of commitment, this is going to be the stat. So therefore, what do we do then with the orphans and the children of the world that have never actually asked for much other than a tiny bit of love? At some point, we as singles actually have to start defining family and in the hope that we will actually connect with someone. I still hope that I will find someone, a partner to do this with, But I realized, I actually gave a deadline to a point where I'm like, I'm gonna wait until I'm 40. If no one comes, comes, and I obviously will do whatever I can to activate and initiate the ability and the availability for my own heart to be open to relationships um, without any sense of sort of desperation and codependency, I will wait until I'm 40. And then at the age of 40, I will research as in train to go into the social services and um, and be a qualified foster parent, where was the flip between adoption to fostering so this is where i 'll go next. I um, was seeing you know many Christian families who had a decent amount of money be raising thirty to fifty thousand uh, dollars in order to be matched with a birth parent and to take a child a baby quite literally from the hospital into their own loving arms. And uh, and having beautiful relationships with the biological parents as well as um, uh, create and cultivate good communication around those children who are coming into their own homes. And they were also people that um, felt very strongly about pro-life. And rightly so, if you're going to be pro-life, you're going to have to be uh, very proactive about being involved in the foster care system because plenty of people, when I was working in pregnancy crisis counselling and post-abortion counselling, uh, the number one reason why people were were aborting because they didn't trust the foster care system to take care of their child. And they didn't trust that adoption had secure enough systems in order to make sure that that child had the same remaining parents forever. Um, and so with that, um, it's one thing having your mouth covered with red tape on the steps but are you actually doing anything for the foster care system or social services because that's actually a, a solution that you're bringing to a problem not more punishment and not more condemnation we don't need any more, more of that i think the american church have done a really good job of that so far sorry but i'm just getting a bit tired of everyone's opinions when people aren't actually acting on what they believe and so I recognised that I felt very passionate from, from the years of when I was a pregnancy crisis counsellor taking care of people in really awful situations, horrific stories that I wouldn't even dare share out publicly. But I I saw all the sides of a woman in pregnancy crisis and I've been privy to people who had had abortions and ten years later they're wondering what happened to the foetus of their child. The grief of abortion is extremely strong and I don't think we've done a very good job so far as the church of doing it, of handling that subject very well. Um, but I am encouraged to see churches who are from the front talking about the importance of fostering and adoption so that we do give some women other options and other choices and might be ones that could create the opportunity for their baby that they know they need to give up, um, but give it a chance to have a life because they can trust the family taking it on. So it's one thing having the um, adoption journey and and the idea of that. But again, I I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel equipped. And I I really wanted to know that um, I could give this child a good life. When it flipped into being fostering, I found myself um, starting to interview a lot of single people and a lot of single people who were foster carers started out in the fostering journey. They actually wanted to see if they could do a decent job with a child for more than 24 hours. And I remember speaking to a really brilliant guy and I'm sure some of you are following him probably on Instagram. He's, he's created a brilliant movement and following in regards to the fostering journey. He's called foster flipper dad on Instagram, a guy called Peter Mutabazi. And, um, he used to be um, a street kid in Uganda and had this most incredible heart and compassion for children like himself that were stuck in abuse or um essentially he'd run away from home at 10 years of age because he believed his father was going to kill him he'd rather be killed by a stranger um, I met Peter um, two years ago just after the pandemic started when I reached out to him and asked if I could interview him in regards to his journey I was starting to work at this point on the, the Orphan Myth campaign uh, which was a, uh, a movement essentially of 30 NGOs, a collaboration basically of 30 NGOs that were trying to deinstitutionalize orphanages and also trying to uh, encourage domestic fostering. Um, because of the stats that we were facing, and the fact that we could catch upstream a lot of the problems economically in the world and you, you know humanitarian wise in the world if we actually just focus on the foster care system for once, but it was interesting that how few people were actually doing manpower and this was the moment when I was actually starting to look at the church an awful lot more now. The church themselves give $1 billion of donations to orphanages across the world. Um, But that stat of one family in every three congregations um, was hard to achieve by the looks of it, which is why we have 130,000 trapped in the foster care system at the moment. Uh, Our mandate is to take care of the orphans and the widows. And um, as Christians, we're supposed to be taking care of them. They're supposed to be one of our prime... Um, priorities they this was honestly one of the most important things that i believe the office bearers of the early church actually had to take care of was not just the widows but scooping babies out of gutters in the empire at that time the journey of um of what was taking place in regards to pregnancies um abandoned children pregnancies all over the shop it was just uh hellish and the church or one of the main missionaries to take care or at least try and have a justice button on this whole thing and what I think has been happening is over the time the word of mouth from fostered carers and adoptive parents has been almost one of a horror show um the the word of mouth marketing around fostering children and adoption is not great because it is incredibly difficult it's not an easy journey it is heartbreaking it's emotionally torturous at times these kids blame you for taking them away from their biological Parents, but you can't explain to them why they had to be removed necessarily. They're too young to understand addiction. They're too young to understand neglect and abuse. Um, So as far as they're concerned, you're the one that's removed them from this home and regardless, because they know nothing else, you know. So there's so many different emotional dynamics involved in this. And I can understand why a lot of people are like, you're going to have to have a grace for it. You're going to have to have a grace for it. I'd like to propose, actually, I don't think I have a grace for it, but when you say yes, the grace comes and it has been lifting and and building more and more in me as I've been saying yes and yes more and more to the journey. I also have to say this. I started interviewing private investigators, people that were working for the LADCFS, people that had both a bulletproof vest on and a baby car seat in the back of their car, uh, people that had extremely brilliant expertise. The, one per- the 1% the uh, one percent top experts I had been given access to because of working for the Orphan Myth campaign were giving me their thoughts on single adoption and single fostering versus two parents in the family. And I remember one private investigator saying to me, uh, giving me a story um, that was involved with a, uh, a drug den raid. And there was a nine-year-old boy in a wheelchair who was basically sitting on his own whilst everyone else was comatized and out of it. Um, and some were com- completely overdosing. Um, the private investigator was desperately trying to find someone that night to take this nine-year-old boy. And she said she couldn't find anywhere in Los Angeles to take in a nine-year-old boy that was in a wheelchair. Some of that was because of wheelchair access, but some of it was just the fact that every foster carer was already overburdened. And she said, Carrie, I just need someone to love these children. I just need one. And I think it was at that point that I thought, at what point are we wanting more of an agenda of what tr- family tradition should look like versus taking care of a nine-year-old in a wheelchair at what point are we going to start to actually rise up as singles not just getting our emotional needs met not just getting our physical needs met but we're actually standing up and going you know what I've got a few hours in my day to take care of a kid I've got a few hours in my day just to mentor a kid on a Thursday evening and we can do whatever the kid wants because if you can't do that Please don't try and marry someone. Please don't think that you've got what it takes for a long-time relationship. And I remember uh, the very brilliant Joe Ritchie, who is a... Uh, gosh, I don't even know where to begin on describing how brilliant he is, but um, he's probably one of my... He is one of my heroes in my life. He's a father of one of my friends. And... He had actually said that, you know, there are lots of guys out there wanting to find their wife, a lot of Christian people wanting to find their spouse. And yet I can't seem to find enough people to give two to three hours a week just to spend time with a child in the foster care system. And that makes me very concerned about the character development or the maturity of these people, which I completely agreed with. And so I, I started to listen a little bit more on to the need for fostering, the need for time out, the need for safety um, for these children. And actually the whole point of fostering is for reunification. Um, And to actually help the family either have time out so that they can actually restore themselves, get rehabilitation, get the resources they need, get the therapy they need in order to be able to become better parents for these children. And on top of that, sometimes it's incredibly helpful to have single parents because you don't know if these children have been raped or sexually abused, in which case they can't be anywhere near. Um, potentially a father figure they need a few months just to be able to go through a bit of healing well of course it takes longer than a few months but just for safety just for general protection uh, it's actually been very useful to have single foster parents in the time of crisis um, just so they can have a little time out a little quiet a little silence to be able to regain the courage and the ability to reunite them with their parents. Or if the parents have to go to prison, uh, then we find them uh, more of a, a stable, steadfast home. And I have seen the most phenomenal single parents do the most brilliant job of being steadfast. And amazingly, if we are stepping up to the mark and going, Lord, you're welcome to stretch me now. You're welcome to um, take my life and use it for the benefit of a child that... Um, is going to be stuck somewhere tonight if I don't give my spare room to them. When I started to realise all it really required outside of love and some patience was a spare room. It made me realise that I was going to need to start looking for a place with a spare room and, uh, Los Angeles being, you know, as expensive as, um, Buckingham Palace. I, I, I'm assuming to rent a room. Um, I decided to move back to my home in Redding, California. Fortunately, both of my homes I rented out and I always felt that I was supposed to keep them. Um, But again, I was just making these shifts and changes, slowly, slowly stepping towards the possibility of making more space for children to to turn up. Um, On top of that, I also wanted to look into the character behind those who had stayed being able to foster children longer than a year. The burnout rate for foster carers is... uh, 50% 50% dropout after the first year. And there are certain com- uh, charities like the Mockingbird Society that create constellations and hubs for families that need support. And uh, they create bi- basically communities around that foster carer family uh, to which they sort of have 10 families around one family to make sure that, you know, everyone can take a piece of the pie without anyone really getting burnt out. Their attention rate is is very, very high because of that um, but I also wanted to do character research. I wanted to look at the parents that were able to survive and go through it and not let it be a meltdown for them and not put them through huge amounts of trauma. Um, and I found uh, there are some parents that had just actually had told me, you know, until I was fostering, I was fairly insecure and doing fostering now I'm very confident and I thought oh gosh I thought it would be the opposite to be honest with you I thought these kids were just going to destroy every bit of your soul every week <laughs> I sound quite foreboding over these children I'm kind of doing it on purpose so that I get sweetly surprised by their sweetness and their fun and and all the, the great rewards that come with fostering I'm purposely I'm purposely being a bit um not pessimistic Well, maybe it is pessimistic, but I I would say I'm I'm purposely trying to be um, uh, realistic about how it could play out. Um, Additionally, you know, the social service, uh, the social worker that I'm working with, she basically said, oh gosh, I've had about 120 children now over the 17 years I've done this and I think I've liked five of them and I went, wow, okay um so it's been a really fascinating journey just to kind of to where we've got to now and i remember it was the likes of peter mutabarsi and then another friend danny carsons who seems to be the only single person in redding california that is actually (laughs) that is actually um doing this and um and that's why so many people have contacted me going, do you know, Danny Carsons? And I probably will get her in, on here for a podcast. Uh, but she's been a trooper and uh, she's been sort of guiding me and talking to me a little bit about the journey and what it's like. And um, she was the one that was sort of advising, you know, as a single, it, it felt very useful for me to have the ages from five to 11, um, especially if you're working during the day and navigating all of that Um uh, 5 to 11 felt like a good space for her. I put myself down on the form um, after the first home study to say uh, between 0 to 12, um, and they were trying to push not just one child, and uh, not just two, but potentially three, two in a bunk bedroom down the corridor from my room, <laughs> then a crib in mine. I'm like, have you seen the size of my, my rooms? They're literally about 8 by 11 can barely fit a bed in there for myself never mind a crib and she said well you know you you're allowed to have a baby in your own room until the age of six months I'm like, oh we'll just stack them up in the closet shall we I mean I don't I can't, I can't even I don't know whether you recognize I'm still just one person so um <laughs> that was an important thing to recognize and um and I and I'm having to learn very quickly where I say no and how to say no Um, And they're brilliant at accepting you'll know, which has done a a brilliant job in regards to building up trust. And I spoke to my friends who have been fostering and adopting around here and they were recommending certain agencies that are really good at matching and really good at knowing, uh, understanding and learning you. And the whole process, even just of training for fostering, was so fascinating and asked a huge amount about how your parents treated you Uh, they asked if you'd experienced corporal punishment um in england of course banking is banned um so it it wasn't a different change in me for parenting by signing the sheets that said i'm not going to do corporal punishment nor any humiliation or public humiliation at all with these children that makes perfect sense because it's incredibly triggering and the majority of the time corporal punishment has been used as a form of an excuse for abuse um when it comes to these foster kids so um by the time they've got to the foster care system they've come from a really difficult place and i i've thought i had to have everything ready and available to and i realize as i've been going through the training and we're looking at pictures of children pretty graphic pictures of children where um they've been uh both bruised off because they've fallen off a slide or they've been um, intentionally hit by an electrical cord and we have to learn the differences of the bruising and to recognise the things that we're recognising on the abuse that they might have seen or, or we might have witnessed. We're having to report an awful lot for the social workers of their progress, their behaviour. We're having to note things that they say or do when they're with us and obviously we have to ensure that they visit their biological parents if or if not the biological parents show up for the visits, then you have to navigate all of these different emotional journeys that the child is on. So I recognise I could really only do two. And um, I also recognise that, um, and, you know, again, from research and asking lots of friends for advice... Uh, the advice was like, start with respite. I think social services like you to start with respite just so you get to just have a little taster of some of the journey that you're going to be on. Um, So respite is basically where you have children from one to 10, no, 14 days max. And they're normally children that are already with foster carers um, and already... already in the system if that makes sense uh then we start to get to a point of more emergency uh call outs which could be gosh three o'clock in the morning being given a call saying hey we've actually just had to remove this child from their or these children from their parents can we bring them around to you once we've done the filing um those kind of things will become more and more intense as we become more and more experienced i think but they like to ease you in at first um but uh and just to be very um very honest and transparent about the journey you are paid in fostering um and it changes depending on the case so if you have a high medical case for a child then obviously you'll be paid an awful lot more to take care of them especially if it means lots of care and lots of hours around that child um one-on-one which means that you wouldn't be able to work yourself especially if you're doing you know five hours in er um if you've got high suicide possibilities or attempts with one child you're going to have a higher higher amount um paid for you per month but these are with the placements when it comes to respite you'll probably be paid about 30 dollars a night to take care of these children um and that can be from 12 o'clock during the day um and they might just have the clothes on their back and then you might have them until eight o'clock the following night So $30 won't cover very much, which is why I then started the GoFundMe account, because I think there have been... Potentially, some people like, oh, why has she got a GoFundMe account when uh, they're paying her to do this? So, um, essentially, their GoFundMe account was for all of the things that need to be done to the house and all the equipment that needs to be here ready for them. So that's obviously beds, furniture, um, clothing, or at least some backup of clothing, uh, the... um, repairs on the house so this is an old house my house was built in 1933 there are warped porch boards and um there's a a huge 900 square foot attic with um a sort of long large drop from a platform down the stairs which you know if a child pulls off that you know i'm in a lot of trouble so um having a carpenter to make sure that we can build a bookshelf to sort of block that and a railing on the other side um all of these kind of things add up and um I set up the GoFundMe account thinking this will take months to raise and I wanted to keep it there just so that people could add as and when they wanted to or when they needed to and I've been so within a month we raised the first goal and I think I've never really seen the Lord show up in ways like this. And I don't mean just financially. I mean the people, the expertise, the, um, the voices, the uh, ability to be able to work from home and remotely and to be flexible. The, the fact that I was given two houses for four years ago, one which I rent out as an Airbnb and one that I live in myself, the airbnb covers the mortgage i've been being set up for the last five to six years on this journey and i didn't realize just how strategic he's been until honestly in the last six months um i also really feel and i've always been a little bit like this i've always liked to go on untrodden paths and be a bit of a pioneer in different ways i'm not a pioneer for fostering there's thousands of single people doing this Um, And they're all my heroes for doing it. I just can't help but think that I'm supposed to share a, a lot about it because I've been having messages from both women and men saying, I've been thinking about doing this too. There's a few things I've been concerned about. One is having the grace for it. Secondly, I don't know whether I've got the time I work in an office rather than I work at home or i'm nervous that you know i don't have the room or I, I don't have the space or um or i'm waiting you know for the guy to show up but i've started to recognize that the more i say yes to things Even with a thousand unknowns, the more he's showing up in the unknown, the more he's actually been changing my perspective on things that has, and now I get why people are saying, I got so much more confident when I started fostering. I get it now because I have to say, even in dating, I'm a lot more cutthroat when it comes to giving guys who potentially are showing some pretty unhealthy behaviours the light of day I'm being a bit more cutthroat now I what I would have allowed months of trying to work through something I'll I'll give it a week and um essentially it's helped me really know what I need in this journey and what the children need if anything here's me coming in thinking that I was going to be helping out some children and the more I'm doing this the more I'm like I think these children are helping me out and that's not the reason why we're doing it um but I think I got more and more invested into realizing my gosh, when I first started this journey of wanting to adopt and making sure that I wanted it to be baby and I wanted to raise the money for it privately. And I wanted it to be a private agency and a good agency and not have anything to do with foster care system. Cause they're crazy. Um, I realized I was all about me. All of those choices were all about what made me happy and what made me feel less fearful As I started to do more and more research, more and more knowledge gave me more and more courage. And of course, I've met more and more people that were doing this that can do it and showed me that they can do it. And I didn't have, I was losing excuses. And I got to a point where I recognized that um, if I start asking what do they need, then the Lord will provide me with what I need. And also, I'm gonna have a much more enjoyable time doing it. And so the journey of like, oh, are you going to adopt? I might do if the right child comes along and I feel like I'm a good match for them, then yeah. But at the time of right now, the key is to take care of a child that needs a bed for the night and to try and help not just the child but the families in total. I'm not coming in as a martyr and rescuing the families. It's not that at all. It's messy. It's gross. It's ugly. It's it's debauched in many ways um but if you really want to see god show up in your life sometimes it really helps to go to some of the darkest corners of the world or humanity and uh, and let him do the miraculous and so to all of those who are listening who have been donating to the gofundme account i just want to say thank you There are many of you out there that are thinking about doing this, but can't do it just now. And instead, the wraparound support that you're supplying for me is equally as important for all of the foster carers out there that are needing all of this setup and equipment and funds ready to do things for these kids that they need. Um, And equally, if you're thinking about it, now might be the time to research. It may not be the time to act but it might be the time to research and maybe this episode can help you in your own interest intrigue and navigation into it a couple of non-profits i would suggest following are the likes of american kids belong who are focused on building trust with the government in each state and filming the faces of these children that are ready for legal adoption Um, and they have the most gorgeous videos of these kids and they get dressed up on the day and they get filmed and they're asked what family meets and then they ask what their hobbies are, what they want to do, what their dreams are when they get older. Um, And it's very hard not to want to just adopt all of those children, to be quite honest with you. But for all the bad word of mouth marketing that has happened in the foster care system and social services, I have to say... With the children I've met in foster care so far, they're the world's next leaders as far as I'm concerned because they've gone through more adversity than any of us have done and if we can give them a fighting chance, they might just become giants and world changers. And even if they're not world changers, even if they've just decided to do carpentry and become you know, really good landscapers. Let me tell you, there's a real shortage for them right now. And the place is looking rubbish in the city because of it. (laughs) So I just, I just want to give these kids a chance. And I may not be a massive fan of children necessarily, but I'm a big fan of building people. And, um, if we're not careful, we're going to get so insular, so all about our needs and what we want and what we desire in a family that um, we're going to just essentially die on ourselves because we've been spending too much time looking at our own reflection in the mirror rather than looking outward and seeing who needs our help. And so if you're not someone who has a spare room, find the local foster family in your area, ask the, ask the pastor in your church to get everyone that is fostering to stand up. And ask them, what can you do? Get them pizza once a week. Just do something that adds to the, the knock-on butterfly effect of giving these kids finally a forever home. I hope that helped. If you want to reach out to me, I'm at Carrie Gracie on Instagram. My website is www.carryloyd.live And I am still coaching. I'm back in the US now. um, And I'm taking on a few extra clients during this time, uh, because that will be my main income coming outside of my writing journey and my interior design stuff that I'm doing. Um, That'll be my main income as I take care of these children if there are any of you that are interested in fostering or want to have more of a zoom call i am starting to think about potentially doing a zoom session every two months with expertise foster carers people that have been in this for a lot longer than me um i look forward to sharing with you the journey i promise you that not all of these podcasts are just going to be about fostering i'm still going to be talking about the much bigger subjects um but thank you for listening thank you for taking your time even just to listen to this and um, even if you don't have the grace for it, sometimes when you say yes, whatever that role might be towards this subject, the world needs everyone to get involved. And that's when the grace comes, when we say yes. Speak seem. Thank you so much for listening to the Carry On Podcast. I've so loved your messages. If you're new to this, um, then I'm on Instagram at Carrie Gracie. And you're welcome to DM me there. I do read my own messages. We do have a little team that helped me out with it as well. And we have a Facebook page that is called Carrie Lloyd, funnily enough. So uh, if there's anything you want me to talk about, if there's anything you wish to get in touch with us about, uh, then you can also go on to www.carrielloyd.com. That's my um, main website where you can contact us through there. Um, Always a pleasure. Never a chore, darling.